This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast where each week we take a look at some of the articles from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode we'll be looking at the Tory leadership fight and who might be likely to make the final two. Plus we'll be talking about whether parents should buy into Stonewall's gospel. And finally we'll look at what the metaverse is. First up, Our editor, Fraser Nelson, has written this week's cover piece about the Tory leadership race. He joins us now, along with The Telegraph's Alison Pearson. Fraser, you write about the cloak and dagger of the Tory party leadership race. What have you made of the race so far? Is it a contest that is more about character assassinations than it is policy platforms? I have to say I've been very disappointed by the the quality of the conversation so far. The Conservatives are in a big old mess right now. They're the party supposedly devoted to small government lower taxes. They've ended up delivering the exact opposite, and they're not sure why. Now, I've been listening to all of the, the various pitches. It's very easy for them to say, we want lower taxes. Of course, that was, was Boris Johnson's problem. He wanted lower taxes too. His journalistic spirit was willing, but the governmental flesh proved weak. Now, we need somebody who's going to be able to deliver on that. And none of the um, explanations have struck me as being particularly convincing. What these Tories are very good at is attacking each other. So we've got briefing documents. There was a, do- a briefing document attacking Rishi Sunak that was released by a member of, it turns out, Pretty Patel's team. He denied all knowledge. But there's other briefing documents going against. I've seen a very good briefing do- document against Penny Mordaunt, for example. These things seem to mysteriously emerge from thin air. But when it comes to solutions, I'm afraid to say Penny Morden's launch video was to me a classic example of this genre. It seemed to be almost like a spoof of a Tory video rather than the real agenda, full of like a bingo of Tory cliches of, you know, talking about the military, uh, you know, the White Cliffs of Dover, we love our country, etc. And n- nothing really solid in the way that The question is a really important one. If Boris Johnson failed, then what needs to be done to succeed? And you need more than just vague ambitions here. So right now what we're seeing is Westminster has become a flurry of poison darts being blown around everywhere. And we're seeing the usual thing of Tory wars where the winner is the last person who somehow hasn't managed to be killed off by the other Tories. Alison, this week you've said that it must be Penny Morden who should be our next Prime Minister. What is it that you like about her and what do you think she stands for? Well, I'm, I'm going to be very honest here. I think that the Conservatives are heading for an extinction-level event in 2024. So my championing of Penny Morden is based on the fact that I think she could have the biggest popular appeal to the party faithful and bring in Tories who are in their millions contemplating voting Lib Dem at the next election. And I have, as a Telegraph columnist, thousands and thousands of readers have been emailing me. Well, they were certainly emailing me to say, I'm never voting Conservative again while that man is Prime Minister. So that man has now gone. I think precisely perhaps the qualities that Fraser found lacking in the cheering uh, White Cliffs of Dover video might be just the job to reach people. I think people want 
the tainted people, and I would include Rishi Sunak uh, amongst that number. I think they want shot of that previous administration. I think only by having a new cast of characters can the electorate be made to feel that we're pressing ahead. I think that Penny Mordaunt, as I wrote in my piece of The Telegraph, she is absolutely bang on normal person, grew up in a very modest home, special needs teacher, mother who died of cancer when Penny was young. Her father was a paratrooper turned teacher. He also got cancer and Penny became the main carer for the family. They didn't have a washing machine. She did the weekly wash in the bathtub for the entire family. Uh, Your columnist actually this week, the Spectator columnist, Matthew Paris was having a bit of a snigger on Radio 4 about Penny having been a conjurer's assistant. Now, many of people, many people from mine and Penny's upper working, lower middle class background would think conjurer's assistant was a pretty good job to have. So I think that, and another thing, I'm actually on holiday at the moment, the 20 something young people around the pool here, they are quite attracted to Penny Mordaunt. They don't think some of these so-called woke tendencies are despicable. They find her appealing and fresh and positive. So I am not thinking about ideological purity, Lara. I am closer politically to Kemi Badenoch and Suella Braverman. I am thinking what will keep Labour out in 2024 when we are going to have been through the worst cost of living crisis for 40 years. It's purely a choice for survival. I think if we choose her, we have a chance of winning the next election. That's why I'm backing her. Do you think there's a risk? I, I want to move on from Penny in a second, but do, do, do you think there's a risk, though, that people are just slightly seeing what they want to see in Penny, sort of projecting onto her precisely because they don't know that much about what she stands for, though? Well, yeah, well, yes, yes, but but will when we you know when was that ever different with with leadership? I mean, a leader, as we saw with Tony Blair, people projected a lot of things onto him, but mainly they felt he would be a safe person. This was a labor uh, a labor leader who Tories could feel confident that he wouldn't kind of come and steal all of their money. I am really concerned that the party, the MPs in particular, it's very interesting that at the moment of recording, the party members would, uh, Penny is the overwhelming favourite for the party members, but not for the, not so far for the MPs. And my concern is that going for political purity, ideological purity above electability will come back to haunt us. Fraser, who do you think is the most electable candidate? I have no idea, to be honest. And I, I suppose I might fall um, foul of what Alison calls ideological purity. Uh, people look for different things in this. You can look in this and think, who is the most attractive person? Um, let's look at their backstory. What were they doing when they were 18 years old, etc.? I tend to be a bit more focused on thinking who is most likely to get the country out of this mess. I'm always a great believer in that if your ideas are right, then a good politician will be, will be able to sell them to the voters. So uh, politics is about making and winning arguments. So I, I always think you should start with who's got the right agenda and then work out how would you sell this. Of course, it's perfectly plausible in politics to do it the other way around. Work out who's an attractive person 
and just see if we can get them into two. And, and by the way, Alison says she wants a candidate to stop Labour getting in. And that is another perfectly legitimate role for the Conservatives to stop the other guys getting in. The problem, of course, is then you quite often end up, as we are now, with a, a Tory government which is implementing Labour policy after Labour policy. We're, we've got a tax rate now higher than at any time in the last sort of 74 years. Uh, we've got an um, energy price cap that Ed Miliband introduced. And that is where I guess I'm not particularly Tory in that regard. I don't think Britain is a better country if we have a, a Tory government necessarily. I'm fundamentally a liberal. I think countries are better and stronger and more cohesive when government is smaller and people are given more control over their their lives. So that's why I couldn't really get enthusiastic behind a Tory candidate, who would, in my view, be just as bad as a Labour candidate. So, and, and right now, by the way, to answer your question, Lara, I don't have a preferred candidate in this race. I'm attracted to a lot of what Kemi Badenach says, but... Um, of course, the question is, would she be able to implement? She's never really been a cabinet member. The same questions are true for Penny Morton. I think Rishi Sunak is probably the most, definitely the most able of all of the candidates standing. But then again, would he use his ability to deliver a smaller government and lower tax and a more free society? Or would he simply be a managerialist, continuing through the, the, wherever the Tories think the centre ground is? So, so right now, I'm a sort of floating voter, as it were. I'm just... I'm, I'm, I sort of feel myself like a shopper that's eager to buy. Like a, a persuasive agenda touted by somebody. That's a good um, position to be in, isn't it? That you, you're willing to be persuaded. Uh, yes, but I, I really wish I could share Alison's enthusiasm for, for Penny Morton's. I mean, I, I'm sure her, her story of her background is moving, but it doesn't translate into being able to deliver these things. I've read Penny's book that she wrote, and I found it really quite mushy, I'm afraid to say. So it's, you know, and I would love to be enthusiastically behind anybody right now. By the way, I'm, I'm, Alison, I'm, as far as I'm aware, has anybody else joined you in the Penny, any other journalist? Because right now, <laughs> when we look at, when we get, our, our writers are coming out time after time for, for, for Kemi Badenoch. Rod Little did so today, Robert Toombs did so mm. yesterday, Damien Thompson yeah. did so. And we're not putting them up to it. And it's almost a problem for balance now. We're saying, guys, can you go easy on these Kemi endorsements? Because almost every single day, We've got somebody else writing why it should be Kemi. Now we'd the love to, of Kemi. We, we, we'd rather we'd love to balance <laughs> this out by why it should be Penny Morton. <laughs> but you're the only journalist I know making that case. <laughs> it's a lonely quest, but a necessary one. I have to, <laughs> I have to say that I, I have to say that one of my biggest laughs of the week so far, and there've been quite a few, was uh, Rishi Sunak saying he would his government would be a Margaret Thatcher government. I mean, that's uh, I think um, Rishi's inner Margaret Hilda has been remarkably well disguised so far, hasn't it? I mean, absolutely ludicrous. I mean, you know, you say he's the most capable, but, you know, at the moment what's happening is they always say, don't they, that the flak is heaviest when you're over the target. So they're really spooked. The guys who think they can arrange these competitions and choose the winner, they are really spooked because here comes this woman, a bit of an insurgent, you know, not from the right type of background, first person in her family to go to university. They don't, they don't like it. So the attacks are now coming thick and fast on, on Penny Mordant. But where are the attacks? I'm not seeing any attacks on Rishi Sunak, as you just said, Fraser, 
highest tax rate for 74 years until recently his wife, billionaire wife, was a non-dom. The Tory activists I speak to regularly say they're terrified if Rishi Sunak becomes the leader of trying to explain on the doorstep the non-dom status of the Prime Minister's wife as was, you know. I think it would be an absolute disaster if Rishi Sunak became the leader of the Conservative Party in the middle of the worst cost of living crisis for 40 years. I think it would be a kamikaze choice. I think I cannot say how strongly I think that would be dreadful, absolutely dreadful. And I would rather have any of the others than him. Absolutely. You know, I just think it would be. And I think that the the, the gulf between Westminster, the the sort of Westminster elite and what the Tories and the country feel is it's a chasm at the moment, isn't it? It's absolutely glaring. And as for the attacks on Penny being woke and so on, I don't know what you guys think. We have got massive problems, as Fraser said at the top, massive problems facing this country after lockdown. The children are so far behind in education. We have toddlers with speech delay. You know, the, the, the economy is absolutely on the floor my priority at the moment is not gender neutral toilets you know it it really isn't so i think there's an awful lot of focus from people including your columnist fraser on these culture war elements is that what people are going to be worrying about i was talking to a friend this week who is only filling up half the tank of her car now to take the kids to school that's now 40 pounds a week she's wondering if she can drive them to karate classes can she afford that that's what people are actually thinking, normal people. Penny Mordaunt has a policy to halve the VAT on petrol immediately, you know, £10 off the tank of petrol. So I do think we need a normal person. It, it may seem shallow it, to be avoiding, you know, some of the political niceties, but I think that's where we are now. I think we're going to have to have someone who can build a broad coalition. I don't think a divisive, more a person of the right is the correct choice at the moment. Fraser, would you agree with that, that it's almost easier at the moment to talk about culture wars than it is to talk about tax cuts or cost of living? I certainly think Alison's right to say that the interest in cultural issues, which our writers share, which attracts them to Kami Badenich, is certainly more, you're far far more likely to get a journalist interested in that than you are a punter. And again, it's like all politics, you work out what issues are important to you, then you work out your candidate from that. If you think that cultural issues, gender, um, self-ID, etc., if that's important to you, then of course you're going to be backing Kemi than Penny Morden. So the exposure that Penny Morden's got, I think, is one is an honesty. She's She sounds accused right now of Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, of having um, put the word pregnant person rather than um, mother in legislation. Now, this isn't so much what happened, but whether Penny Mordaunt is correct in saying she didn't do that, because Suella Braverman pretty much said she did. And as Suella Braverman points out, uh, Boris Johnson became unstuck because he didn't tell the truth. Is Penny Mordaunt telling the truth on this? The other issue is what um, Lord Frost, her former boss, said, that she was basically fired for incompetence as Brexit minister because she couldn't do the job, she didn't show up and that he had to ask Boris Johnson to move her on, and he did. Now, that is a bit of a red flag if you think, as I do, that it is possible to cut tax and to um, to lift the burden on motorists, as Alison says, but only if you've got what it takes to cut government spending. That requires a lot of metal. 
Does um, Penny Mordaunt have what it takes? Anybody can promise to cut taxes and put up a deficit. A relatively small number of people would be able to to slim back the government machine. And in a way that, by the way, Rishi Sunak has proved unable to do and doesn't even promise to do now. This is what worries me about all of these candidates, that until they can actively reduce the cost of the NHS, for example, the cost of welfare, then we're all going to be condemned to high taxes. It's absolutely no use for anybody speaking. And Rishi Sunak's right to say they're fairy tales, absolute fairy tales, to offer this cut, this tax cut and that tax cut if you can't also cut government spending. But none of them want to do that because they're all accused of austerity. So where does that leave at? Right now, I'm not quite sure where that leaves us. Well, Fraser, I'm glad you mentioned Lord Frost's intervention today. It, was, it seemed quite very striking to, to, to me. And it seems... So given that how he's the sort of soul, in a way, of a lot of um, Brexiteer Tories, that there may be a anyone but Penny mood, uh, movement in the same way that Alison described that she's part of a sort of anyone but Rishi movement. Do you think this this is a symptom of what you talk about in your piece, that, that we're at a stage now where people just don't want the other guy rather than actually falling behind a kind of positive vision for, for what the leadership should look like? Well, it often comes down to anybody but Joe Bloggs. Alison has made an articulate case for anybody but Sunak. I know some people who think anybody but Mordant right now. They regard her as a blank sheet on people who are graffitiing what they want on, but a person fundamentally of no substance, an autopilot candidate destined to go into the cliffs. Alison's given a very articulate case why that isn't the case, but so often it does come down to this leadership. You decide who you really don't want, and then you will choose whoever is likely to beat that person. And this is what happens in Tory contests so often. People get elected for who they're not, not who they are. Ian Duncan Smith was not Michael Portillo. That's why he was elected. John Major was not Michael Heseltine. That's why he was elected. And right now, it may, it may, it may well come down to this. Who do you not want to be prime minister? But you also get... But the competence issue is, I think, important. This was why Michael Gove did for Boris Johnson in 2016. He thought this guy fundamentally could not run a government. At the time, I thought it was pretty mean of Michael Gove. I have to say now, I'm beginning to wonder if Michael Gove was right all along, which is why the red flags of competence, you'd expect them to get to get um, raised right now. So if it's true that Penny Mordaunt was fired for incompetence as a Brexit minister, as David Frost says, I'm not, I have no idea if he's telling the truth or not, but if that is true, there is something that people would need to consider now before they vote for her as leader. I think in the, in the interest of fairness, can I just say that David Davis, who has come out for backing... Penny Mordaunt made the point that when he was uh, making his principled walkout on the Theresa May Brexit deal, Brino, Brexit in name only, the only other cabinet member who stood up and made a fuss and said we can't put up with this was Penny Mordaunt. So I think Penny has been an authentic Brexit champion. Rishi Sunak claims to have been a leader. She didn't resign though, but Penny Mm -hmm. didn't resign from from cabinet, no, though, no she didn't resign, but she, uh, David Davis said that she was the only one who, who spoke out, out against it. I also think it's interesting that one of Penny's pitches is that she is, doesn't want this sort of egocentric, narcissistic, central figure anymore. She thinks that's a broken, outdo- outdated model of leadership, and she wants uh, action ministers to pick really good ministers and to let them run their departments properly themselves. And I think that's something that we saw under Boris's leadership with some, in fact, he sacked Penny Mordaunt as Defence Secretary. She'd been in the job for three months. She'd been widely welcomed by armed forces chiefs because she is a naval reservist herself. I don't think there was any suggestion that she was not uh, was not a good person. In fact, a few weeks ago, she shared with me a very moving photograph, actually. It was Penny 
in the forests of Ukraine. This is long before the war broke out and she was there with British troops training ordinary Ukrainian men and women to defend their homeland and she was extremely comfortable in that environment and she was very very proud of what our troops had achieved and I think she you know she believes in that we can be a force for good in for good in the world and I think she can be uh, have a positive cheering up message at what is going to be a bleak time and again you know you can say those are not political problem-solving things, but it's about winning. In the end, I don't want a Keir Starmer government. I, it was not even just going to be a Keir Starmer government, is it? It's going to be Keir Starmer plus whichever Tim is leading the Lib Dems at the time. And Nicola Sturgeon, <laughs> God help us. So Penny Mordaunt wants that to be a candidate for the union. She wants to not just retain the red wall. She wants to go for the yellow wall. She wants to get Scotland back for the Conservatives. So I think that, I think we can trust her to put some proper talented people into her, gov into her cabinet. She won't be threatened as Boris was by having anyone who was even slightly better than him round the table. Anyway, but as we know, I'm, I'm, a I'm making a lonely case here, Will and Laura. But, <laughs> but the Tory members with agree you. with Alison Pearson, surprisingly. So if well, it's, gets, it's, it's, I mean, it's not so lonely, Alison. I mean, right now, Penny Morden is overwhelmingly the odds-on favourite. The bookies have got her way above Rishi Sunak. And the opinion poll suggests Tory members would vote her in over almost any other contender. Yes, so, yes. So, so, so right now, the, the, the Mordmentum is pretty strong. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's actually becoming hard to see what can stop her, actually. So well, maybe, you'll, think... maybe you'll be in there as her chief of staff pretty soon. <laughs> I think I think it was my it was possibly my uh, my large article endorsing her, which has given the members the idea that she might be a good person. Fraser, uh -huh. so sometimes journalists oh, do help, help nudge history along a bit. I I do think we will have a female prime minister, and that will be the third female prime minister, courtesy of the Conservative Party. I'm really pleased about that. Uh, we have you know, it's, well, I'm not. It was, I don't it think was I Pearson can, what won it. I can, I can <laughs> see it now. <laughs> No, I'm look. I just think we have got. Sorry, we have got a very, uh, you know, a diverse top five, haven't we? Um, including four women. I think that's something. I think that's something to celebrate. Well, Alison and Fraser, thank you very much for joining. Next, for her column this week, Mary Wakefield challenges Stonewall's guidelines for parents with trans children. She joins us now with Tammy Plunkett, who is a former nurse, life coach, and author of. Beyond pronouns, Mary. Yes, well, in your hello, well. in your article this week, you write that in your view, children are being fed a distorted version of reality. Why? When you look at the material, when you kind of dig down into it, it seems like a lot of it relies on. Seems to me this article of faith that there's no such thing as born biological sex. That, in fact, bodies are just like amorphous lumps of meat and that one has to decide one's own gender identity and so at the heart of quite a lot of the thinking on 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 sort of modern trans stuff seems to be this this thing that can't be proved and is an article of faith and is there really just to support the idea of kind of self-id and make it such that that can't be questioned now from my perspective i don't really understand that that can be true or why it's thought to be true other than just as a device used so self-ID becomes a thing. So I'd love to know what Tammy well, thinks. Tammy, you are a former nurse and author to Beyond Pronouns, as well as a mother to a 
transgender child. I wondered if you could tell us what you think of, of Mary's argument in her article. I have to say that I come from this from the position of humanizing the transgender person and not reducing things to a concept or gospel or a culture war that these are actual human beings. And, and I am not, I'm still learning myself. And I don't know that we are not female or male when we are born. I, I do understand that there is biology there. I was a nurse. And there's more than male and female because there are people who are born intersex who have more than one gonad <laughs> or, or yeah. Gamish. A, a, more than one sex characteristic when they are born. And they also can have different... Um, different chromosomes. Chromosomes, yeah. exactly. And, and that is up for debate. So I'm not, I, I am, I am not a person who says that women don't exist. I believe that women exist, men exist, intersect people exist, and transgender people exist. Yes. But I guess the question is whether transgender people, because they're not all going to have different chromosomes. I think we've sort of established that. So I agree. Everyone is in the business of trying to keep children safe, you know, most of all you um, with your own yes. experience. And so I suppose the first, my first position would be it's really important for us to keep asking questions, keep doing studies, keep trying to figure out what is going on here such that the rate of children identifying as trans is growing so that we can best keep them safe. That's all I think. 100% I agree with that. I agree with that, yes. I worry that by writing articles where we say that 80% of people are, de- I call it detransitioning, yeah. uh, that's not true. 80% of people are not changing their minds. When, when you talk and, about detransitioning, do you mean, because I think the desisting stuff on, in the UK um, websites it refers to children who've said they may have a different gender identity before they take puberty blockers or anything like that and then desist before treatment. So it's not about people who... Um, are detransitioning like Kira Bell. So I'm not talking about people who've, who've undergone either any, chemi- tra- any, any kind of tra- medical transition. In, yeah, I'm talking about yeah. kids who question their gender identity and might be then prescribed puberty blockers or not, depending on the therapist they go to. Yeah. So in, in that case with de- desisting, yeah. uh, the latest study that I've read, and it was just released from the American Academy of Pediatrics, they found that only 2.5% of those in the study determined that they were not transgender. Right. I don't... So, and this was without any medical intervention. This was only social transition. Yeah. So oh, that's, so, that's 97, north yes. of 97% who, who still continue to that's fascinating. hold their identity. And that kind of gets to the heart of it, actually, because I, um, I think we're talking about the same thing here. I think it's that when your child comes to you and says that they think they're trans, you have a choice, I guess, and it's a choice you've faced. Do you do kind of watchful waiting? Do you affirm them and socially transition them? And I think, yes, absolutely. If you choose to socially transition transition them and change their name and their, you know, gender identity in life, then I think that they do carry on on that pathway. So I suppose it's about 
that point of what should you do when they come to you? And is it the case that if you don't socially transition them, 80% of those kids then find that resolves later on in puberty? So you're saying that if the child doesn't socially transition, 80% of those children say, I was wrong? Yeah, the condition resolves um, during puberty. So... And, they, and, and most of those children, at least this is perhaps UK studies, I don't know, go on to be kind of normal gay girls or boys. I mean, okay, I without, without further, study, without so further me- medical. But, but I, I suppose, Tammy, the, the, beyond the kind of um, intricacies of the studies, I suppose the, there's a question here to do with the level to which a parent should give a child that responsibility and whether putting someone on puberty blockers could push a child further into dysphoria and transitioning, which is something which is a, a something Mary raises in her column as, as a point of, of concern. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that kind of balance between when it comes to parental responsibility in terms of kind of le- encouraging a child or not encouraging a child or leaving it up to the child's decision purely? Yes. So if I, if I can tell you the weight of that responsibility is enormous. As a parent, we all just want the best for our children. We, we keep ourselves up at night for much smaller events than having your child come to you and say that their gender identity doesn't match what we've been talking yeah. about for the last 11 years. So yes, it, it keeps us up at night and it is very stressful. And I also don't want to paint the picture that a child just sort of springs it on their parent with everything having been sunshine and roses before that. My child was socially isolated, anxious, depressed, miserable by the time he figured out what it was that was wrong with him and and suicidal. So yes it's a huge responsibility but the parent doesn't make this choice on their own to to affirm their child or uphold their identity it's done with doctors psychologists family there there's a whole team around this and it was never my decision on my own what i did decide was that my child's well-being was more important to me than any debate that is going on on social media and i had to know what could help him the best and fastest and if i made to the 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 uh the risk of puberty blockers yeah we we did choose to put my son on puberty blockers and again he was suicidal he was depressed beforehand and our options were puberty blockers or antidepressants or other medications they both have side effects. They both have effects of worsening anxiety. Well, at least antidepressants have worsening anxiety or even suicide for younger kids if they take antidepressants. So it's not just a willy nilly decision that we decided. He was on Lupron for no, two I years and that, that bought us time to really see that this is not just an overnight decision and it wasn't because the cool kids were doing it at school because he was actually the only child that we knew of who transitioned it wasn't a social contagion yeah do you accept that it might be in some some cases can I ask is is it your son who's a trans woman or trans girl or what I can't quite work out what position your son is in he is 
transgender male. Yeah. So he was assigned male. female at birth, lived as he a girl for 11 boy. years, yeah. and now is living as a boy. Is your son, because here at least we're told that a significant amount of the the born girls who feel trans are on the autistic spectrum or have you know other issues which might themselves be the root of the problem and i guess one of my worries that's been reasonably well earned in the press is that the idea of being trans comes along as a way of solving problems that aren't exactly that now it doesn't sound like this is true in your case yeah in places where it is does look like more of a trend and when a lot of girls on the spectrum are transitioning, do you accept that could be a worry that this becomes something they think can, when they solve this, they solve their problems? I hear what you're saying. And uh, so my son is not autistic. Yeah. Uh, there is a concurrence. It's not a cause and effect. No. People aren't coming out as transgender because they are tra- uh, autistic no. or vice it's versa. It's a correlation. The, the, yes, it does happen. And from what I've heard, it is because autistic people have a wider view of what social expectations are. And gender is 100% a social construct and a social expectation. Men um, in, in the old days wore wigs and heels and dresses, and, and that is not what is done today. Gender is a social construct. Yeah. So... I believe, uh, from what I have heard, that autistic people just see that gender is more than what society is imposing on them. And more often than not, they are non-binary and not necessarily transitioning from one gender to the other completely. But some of the the stuff being taught that in in schools, at least here in the UK, by Stonewall and others, which Mary quotes in her article, it goes beyond saying that gender is a social construct. But says that biological sex is, uh, I'm quoting here, uh, made up of a multitude of characteristics that change over a person's life cycle. Do, do you think that, uh, that that's a sort of position which um, is, in, you know, in, Mary, in Mary's uh, words, a sort of distorted version of, of reality, if, if that's the line of argument being used? It, it's, it, it's not a line of argument that I hear a lot here. So it's not something that I've had to dive into deeply. I Personally, I feel that if we are sexualizing transgender people, that's when we are looking at biological sex. And gender and sexuality are completely different. And I don't like the sexualization of children when we say that a person with a penis went into the girl's room. It's, it's not, that's not what is really happening. It is a transgender person who went into the bathroom. Yeah. I kind of, I, I totally agree with you about gender and the stereotypical kind of way we're expected to behave, you know, as someone who behaved pretty boyish all my life, you know. Um, but that, that, again, confuses me a little bit because I think if, if we don't really need gender, we don't need to be told to behave in certain ways to perform, you know, masculinity and femininity. So why then bother changing your body if it's the case that men and women, boys and girls can behave however they want? Why do you need to change your body to act more like one sex or another? Because when when we can behave however we want, we may want to be 
that gender. I'm, I've, I'm was assigned female at birth. I'm biologically female, whichever label you want to put on yeah. it. And I am feminine and I want to wear dresses yeah. and I enjoy my high voice and I yeah. don't need to suppress that. And, and if a, a trans woman wants to enjoy yeah. that perspective, then they should as well. I, I completely agree with that. But for me, why don't you just, doesn't everyone just wear what they want and date who they want and not feel they have to go on what seem to me like potentially dangerous chemicals or resort to surgery. Why do we need that? They need it because of gender dysphoria. They need it because they, I, I, I saw my son when he was developing breasts, he would refuse to shower because he did not want to look at that and touch that part of his body. Yeah. Uh, having menstruation put him into panic attacks. Yeah. That's not fake. It's not just wanting to uh, to yeah. appear like a man. Yeah. He had physical issues that needed a physical yeah. solution. Yeah. Do you think it could could his reaction to puberty be because he was socially transitioned beforehand? It comes as more of a shock to him. No, he had puberty before he socially right. transitioned. Well, it sounds like you've been a very loving and attentive mother, and you thank couldn't really you. ask for more than that. Mary and Tammy, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Finally, in the lead book review this week, James Ball reviews The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionise Everything by Matthew Ball. He joins us now to discuss what the metaverse actually is, along with the Financial Times's Sid Venkataramakrishnan. James, for listeners who might not be aware of the metaverse, could you start by explaining what exactly it is? Um, I wish I could, but most people who seem to be investing tens of billions of dollars into it can't sort of do an adequate one. Most of the time, if you see someone sort of showing it off, it's basically the internet, but virtual reality. Um, Do you remember sort of Second Life from about 15, 20 years ago, where you could have a little avatar and wander around and dance and sort of shop? This sort of idea of the metaverse is that it will be this kind of online space that you can live in and inhabit more. Um, But then people will insist it doesn't have to involve virtual reality. It could involve augmented reality. So stuff appearing in front of your eyes when you walk around with special glasses. But people make all sorts of other claims it will be decentralised. So it won't be controlled by three or four big companies, even though it's been built by three or four big companies or that it will be blockchain, or it sort of feels like people have decided the internet's a bit old. You know, we're all bored with the internet, so let's have something new. Maybe that's too cynical. Well, Sid, I wonder if we can get your thoughts on this. I mean, the headline that's on uh, James's piece is who needs the metaverse, which is sort of quite a good question in a way, because even despite all the excitement about the metaverse from sort of certain big tech people, do you think it's clear that there is a specific need that the metaverse is trying to fill? No, frankly. I think it's incredible that, um, that, as James was saying, so much money is being poured into this without any clear definition and, and in fact, rival definitions. I think there are uses for metaverses. Uh, if you define a metaverse as a virtual world in the broadest sense, obviously games online are extremely popular. Uh, platforms like Second Life or sort of virtual worlds for gathering, you can see a purpose for. But I think particularly in the wake of a pandemic where people have been forced to go and live virtually, it seems I, I don't see a purpose necessarily for wanting large swathes of the population to go online and live vicariously through avatars in low resolution VR worlds or not not even virtual reality worlds. 
James, can, can you see any benefits to the metaverse? There are benefits to some of the technologies that go with it. Um, you know, there are things like the idea of digital twins, which is sort of, you know how when someone's building a new train station, they model the passenger flow through them and look for, you know, could the design make crushes or, you know, dead zones or all of that, and they improve the design. The theory is you could make these work in real time. And so you could have digital twins of hospitals showing you the sort of progress of the patients or how other things are going. You could have real-time crowd flows. You could see how some of those could be really useful. Why you would need to pull everything into some of this stuff is a much trickier concept. I mean, you know, I can remember watching Tomorrow's World on the BBC as a kid and being told, you know, virtual reality is just round the corner. And every time someone offers it, people try it for about five minutes, decide they feel a bit sick or they're a bit bored and uh, sort of take off the headset and uh, never wear it again. You know, I've seen that happen about every three years for ever since I've covered tech and I just don't see why it'll happen again. I think this is, then again, it could be when, when everyone lives on the metaverse in 20 years, this will be one of those brilliant tech predictions gone terribly, uh, things that people... Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll all be uh, horribly mocked by, by our children and children's children. Um, but, but Sid, I, I wondered, so to what extent do you think big tech, big tech companies are trying to sort of will this technology into existence with, with all the, the money they're pouring into it. I mean, you wrote for the FT recently about the huge amounts of money already being invested in, in, in virtual property. But are consumers actually ready to live in the future, as, as Meta puts it? I, I don't think they are. I think that we've seen repeatedly when we've had sociological studies of, for example, kids looking at why they go online and sort of this great fear of children, you know, living virtually, it's actually because they're not allowed to go out as much. And this was before the pandemic. And I think it is very much, as you say, it's about willing it into existence through sheer force of PR and vast amounts of money. And I, I don't see that there is a huge consumer demand emerging. You're seeing people who think that maybe they can flip their virtual properties, their virtual condos somewhere down the line, which has been hit badly by the cryptocurrency crash in most cases. But I think in terms of... Obviously, you can't actually live there. You can spend time walking or having your avatar walk around in a relatively empty shopping mall or in your sort of empty mansion with your five friends who are allowed in your private island. But there's not much beyond that, frankly. There's, there's sort of a real misery to it, isn't there? Sorry to jump in, but um, <clears throat> it's this idea of the one sort of benefit of online spaces. It's unlimited. Like, you know, you can have as many acres as you want just as easily digitally as, you know, you could have one. And so the thing that we decide to do with this apparently new, great, liberating era of technology is to create the scarcity of real-world land. I mean, it's, it's dismal. James, you say in your piece that the powers that be in big tech have decided that the metaverse is the next big thing. Do, do you think we should assume that they know what they're talking about or are they going to look horribly dated in years to come? <sighs> I mean, it's always dangerous trying to work out who knows what they're talking about, isn't it? You know... All the people who knew what they were talking about on polling said Ed Miliband was going to win the 2015 election, uh, myself included, and uh, look how that worked out. So, you know, I think we've lost this idea of big tech guys as these infallible sort of gods from on high who are going to tell us what the future will be. Elon Musk has sort of might have pranked himself into having to spend $44 billion to buy something he doesn't want. Um, 
you know, Mark Zuckerberg has made enough mistakes that we, you know, we, we don't look at Facebook and go, gosh, that company's never going to make a misstep. Who even uses Facebook anymore? It's lucky he bought Insta and WhatsApp. So it's not going to exist just because they want it to. At some point, they're going to have to offer something a normal person would want. And this is what Web3 and the metaverse are kind of failing to do. If they're not something you can get rich quick on, why would you voluntarily spend any time there? And and Sid, do you think that there's a danger of a certain big tech monopoly on the metaverse should it come into being? I mean, obviously, Zuckerberg and, and, and Facebook slash meta is the, 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 the main driving force at the moment. But is there a danger of, of the metaverse or, or metaverses, plural, becoming something of a closed shop? I, I think there certainly is. I think because the big players have the money to make something that is more usable than the frankly, fairly janky worlds which are being produced by decentralised movements. I think that poses real questions around data and all the issues we've seen so far with big tech companies in terms of how they handle issues around content online. And I think that just further solidifying that power, assuming that metaverses do work, but again, having that come through the same handful of players just worsens already existing issues in tech. And I suppose actually, finally, a question for, for both of you, perhaps James starting with you, is that do you think big tech companies will struggle to gain more investment in Metaverse if they don't demonstrate a sort of interest in it or a breakthrough with it soon? I mean, uh, for example, Meta stocks took a huge plunge uh, earlier this year uh, and lost nearly uh, $230 billion in, in market value. So, so do you think they actually do need to have a, uh, uh, yes, a sort of breakthrough uh, soon? I mean, tech companies rarely create the next generation of technology. <clears throat> they tend to sort of become the boring incumbent and, uh, you know, face a new challenger who might not, you know, replace them. Microsoft's still one of the biggest companies in the world, but certainly takes the lead in the next gen of tech. And it's not clear what the new proposition is. You know, you had the web, which was a sort of one-way browsing experience. You had web 2.0, which made it interactive and social. Web3 is sort of make it social, but maybe more visual, but maybe with crypto and maybe so you can buy hats. You know, that's it's not a good proposition. And so, you know, I think there is a sort of, it's not what you can build or, you know, can you finally make legs work in VR because no one can make legs work in VR. It's can you show someone, you know, what's the one sentence thing that it does that what the current internet doesn't? And Sid, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the metaverse sort of works from the assumption, and I think this is true of NFTs as well, in large part, that you can financialize everything. And that isn't a compelling um, proposition for most normal people. There are people who obviously think they can make money off it. And I, I think that when you start with that basis, it's very hard to make a, a breakthrough that isn't through the framework of we can make more money off people coming online. And I think that's not necessarily a compelling answer anymore. Well, Sid and James, thank you very much for joining. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of this week's magazine to read all of the articles discussed? I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.